Good afternoon. I am your host, Sean Orconis, and welcome to Music Speaks, the podcast that is dedicated to how music impacts one person's life. I believe that many people have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. Here is a musical quote for today. Jazz does not belong to one race or culture. It's a gift that America gave the world. Ahmad Aladdin. And I think that's a great segue into introducing my guest. My guest today is someone who I've known for a long time, and is someone who was the first person to bring me into the world of jazz. He's a good friend with my family, and I always feel like he knows what to say when the pressure is on. He's a great musician, excellent educator, and a motivational person. Chris Coulter, a lifetime trumbull resident, has been performing professionally on saxophones since he was in high school, and began playing in organized local music groups when he was nine. He is a Connecticut State Certified Music Educator and currently teaches in New Canaan as a music teacher. Chris also teaches the jazz ensembles at the Trumbull Summer Band Camp Jazz Program. He has his bachelor's degree in music from the University of Bridgeport and his master's of science in music education from Western Connecticut State University. Chris has studied and performed with a number of great jazz greats, including Clark Terry, Jerry Mulligan, Bob Brookmeyer, and Joe Lovano. He has also studied and played in New Orleans with many current and acclaimed traditional jazz and New Orleans-styled musicians. Chris leads the Blue River Jazz Band, who feature classic traditional and swing jazz from the early 20th century Louis Armstrong, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Fats Waller, Sidney Bechet, and much more. And you can find him and his band on www.thebluriverjazzband.com or go to Facebook and go to www.facebook.com slash thebluriverjazzband. Hey, Mr. Coulter, how you doing? Great, Sean, how are you? I'm good. Doing as well as can be expected, uh, the way things are these days. Right, right. I mentioned in my bio that you were one of the first people to introduce me to the world of jazz. And uh, sort of a funny short story, um, at one point in rehearsal you had mentioned, like when I was maybe like 14 or 15, you wanted to sort of introduce the jazz lingo of the world to us. And I thought that was kind of cool. And you mentioned the word cat. And I thought that was so interesting, but I was like, that can't be true. And then, lo and behold, I went to college, and I met my director of jazz studies, and he's like, he called everyone he knew a cat. And I was like, that's where the connection goes from, and I thought that was so interesting. Yeah, the uh, I think I uh, have probably said to you, you know, we could spend a whole period of time talking about just the you know the derivation of all those words and where they came from and who were acknowledged jazz greats that uh, uh, perpetuated the use of those words you know guys like Louis Armstrong and Lester Young Lester Young had uh, the great saxophonist had his whole he had a whole dictionary worth of uh, jazz lingo, you know, yeah. but all the things that we think of, you know, as you and I, as as uh, fans of jazz, you know, things like cat and cool, <laughs> and uh, you know, you know, you dig, you know, things like that. 
yeah, you could you could go on and on about the vocabulary of jazz. Right. You know, yeah. the word jazz itself, we could spend time with. Mm. You know. Yeah. But uh, well, I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> I probably stopped the band to say, "What's the matter with you, cats? You can't play." <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I like to start. Something like that, right? Absolutely. I like to ask my guests this uh, at the top of the show. How are you staying sane right now during the quarantine? Well, I'm a teacher. I'm teaching. I'm teaching band online, hmm. uh, which is decidedly the way the uh, uh, technology technology being as amazing as it is is still not effective for teaching musical instruments online and uh so that uh that that's what's keeping me busy uh is right. it necessary i think it might be driving me more insane than <laughs> me sane. Uh, but uh i spend a, a lot of my time with that hmm. uh but i am managing even though all my gigs got canceled hmm. you know i have no i have some gigs lined up in 2021 uh, people are asking me to play, hoping things will be better. Right. But uh, I had a slew of gigs canceled, so so I'm practicing. I'm I'm transcribing solos, and uh, uh, I'm on a big Lester Young uh, tenor sax kick right now. So I've right. got a bunch of his solos transcribed. Sidney Bechet, the great soprano saxophonist, I've mm. started in on some of his soprano sax stuff. So that's kind of what's keeping me sane. Right. Uh, I was a big Michael Jordan fan in the 90s, uh, me and my son. So there's a great thing on ESPN watching a little of that, mm. you know. Mrs. Coulter's doing a good job, you know, cooking and stuff. So I'm putting mm. on some weight. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a, I like gardening, but I'm not a huge gardening guy. Yeah. Go for walks, things, about, things like that, you right. know. I guess those are the main things keeping me keeping me straight, keeping me okay. Luckily, the family's healthy. My wife and my daughter are both nurses, so they got to go out and, you know, what's the expression they're using now? The front line. You mm. know, they, they go out to work. So, uh, yeah. So, but I've been home. I had to, I just filled up my uh, car with gas the other day for the first time in, uh, since the beginning of March. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I've been, you know, from that you know that aspect of things right okay yeah so what's something that you sort of miss that the virus has taken away oh the communication and the interaction with people yeah oh my goodness yeah you know uh on a real personal level uh just my immediate family you know uh i i'm, I'm a grandpa now and I, mm. I can't go see my granddaughter and give her a hug and things like that mm. uh you know, my own daughter, did you know, I don't know if you knew my daughter, Sarah, she's older than you. Uh, I don't know if you ever met her, though, but she, you know, she's a nurse, but she has her own place. And she comes over, you know, but it's got the mask on and everything. And, it, you know, in a family member, you want to give them a hug. Yeah. You, know? and you can't do that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, um, I miss being with my students at school in terms of just the daily interaction and you know, when you're a teacher, you know, you can't have a real personal online thing going on, you know, and oh, yeah. uh, hope to be able to teach them. So I, that's the main thing, the, the close personal. 
I mean, me, do I miss going to the mall or going to the stores? Nah. <laughs> no, I, I don't. Like, that's not so. So I'm okay with staying home, but I do miss people. Right. I miss my band mates, the guys that I play gigs with and right. stuff like that. You yeah. Know? So miss making music with people. I yeah. got into music. You might have the same way, Sean. We got into music to make music with people. You know, it was an interaction, you know, that that interaction and band. And uh, you did shows, I did shows, you know, that interaction with people, yeah. you know. So that's that's what this is affected now. And right. hopefully it'll be behind us. Nothing like this ever happened in my lifetime, your lifetime, in our parents' lifetime. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think my folks were born in the mid-20s in the big, the Spanish flu pan, uh, pandemic was like 1918 or something. So, yeah. you know, nobody, nobody around now has ever witnessed anything like this. So. Right. Yeah. But, but I think most, for the most part, everybody's hanging in there. Yeah. You know? So, were you born into a musical household? Musical household in terms of uh, music lovers more than music performers. My mom played mm. piano. Um, when she was younger, but once she started a family, didn't play. My father loved music. You know, he we had a you know uh, we had uh, a nice stereo in the house before we had curtains. You know, it's like you know it was like that. That was important. You right. Know, he always had a so a lot of my earliest influences, and maybe we're going to get to that. Maybe we're going to talk about that. Right. Uh, came from some of the music that he played around the house. Right. So, but uh, lo- love music, supported my music, you know, bought my, uh, paid for music lessons, uh, anything I pretty much wanted uh, in music, you know, if he could afford it, he would buy for me. Right. And so, when I was in high school, Sean, you know, I went over to the uh, saxophone late, you know, I I, st- I actually started when I was nine years old in a fife and drum corps. Mm. Which was big in in our area back when I was a kid. Not not anymore. Yeah. But uh, for the listeners out there, fife and drum corps, you know, like Yankee Doodle and you know the guys in the tri cornered hats and everything. And there were and we played in parades and things like that. And right. I played. My father made me play the fife. Hmm. He, I wanted to play the drum, <laughs> and he said, "Oh, Chris, you don't want to you don't want to march around with a drum all the time. They're heavy, you know." Play the fife. It's it's plus you get to play songs and stuff. So he talked me into playing the fife. Mm. And the fife again for the listeners, if they don't know, it's like a flute, you know, yeah. without without all the buttons and everything. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> little did I know until years later, he just didn't want a drum banging in the. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so there was there was a method to his. Uh, so from fife, then I went to flute, and there were more boy flutes back in the day. You right. know? Nowadays, you know, you don't see as many guys taking up the flute. You Definitely. Know? But back then, there were a lot of there were a lot of flute players. Right. And uh, flute actually, uh, when I was in like sixth grade, was when they started band uh, in trumble. Uh, it was pretty popular in, because there was a band called Jethro Tull, mm. uh, which your older listeners would be 
familiar with. They were hugely popular, and mm-hmm. the leader of the band was a flute player. Yeah. So it was actually kind of cool to play the flute. So, <laughs> but but then subsequently later on, I uh, but my father paid for all my you know he paid for lessons and right. you know uh, when I wanted to be in the jazz band in high school because uh, all my friends were in it. Um, yeah. He, you know, I said, I want a summer, I wanted the best saxophone you could buy, mm. you know, and so, so I bugged him and I bugged him and he bought me a saxophone. Mm. So that's kind of, my life is like, I, I'm sorry if I'm talking too much, but this is fun no, for absolutely. to talk about. No, yeah. It's because the question you asked is about music being around the house. Right, yeah. And, and it was encouraged, it was promoted. Right. My mother told me to practice. Right. She made me practice. Mm. It could be a day like we've got a beautiful day outside today. All the kids would be outside, and my mother would say, Christopher, go up and play your repertoire. Right. And my repertoire were the songs that I was learning, you know, and I couldn't go outside until I, you know, played through my songs. And uh, yeah. to this day, all the years I've been teaching and all the students I have, yeah. I've always had someone at home that can kind of push them a little bit, give them a little push. You know? And it's true today more than ever because there's so many distractions, so many other things that you know kids could be wanting to do or be interested in, yeah. like uh, Minecraft or whatever. <laughs> some of the, <laughs> you guys know that what's the Fortnite, you know, and everything else that they can be distracted by. Yeah. So, yeah. but yeah, they were, I lost my mother when I was, you know, very young, I was mm. 13 years old, you know, but she was a huge supporter of practicing and, you know, and all that stuff. Right. And my, and like I said, my father loved, he loved jazz. He loved the, the, especially the music of the swing era. He loved jazz flute players, mm. you know? Yeah. So. Who were your biggest inspirations when you started playing saxophone? With saxophone? You know, there weren't individual saxophone players. We were like all into, uh, we went to a lot of concerts. There were a lot of concerts. And in Connecticut, uh, you know, through my high school, early, late middle school years into high school, they actually had a big jazz festival every year, uh, the Quinnipiac Jazz Festival up in Hamden. Mm. And Sean, they had they had Dizzy Gillespie, they had Ella Fitzgerald, mm. uh, all kinds of names, Buddy Rich. So all the guys I hung out with, we were more into big bands and stuff. We loved Maynard Ferguson. Mm. We, you know, we went to see Maynard Ferguson a bunch of times. Um, when we get into talking about the songs, uh, maybe I could expound upon it a little further. But we went to see Duke Ellington, you know, we like uh, I got to meet Duke Ellington. Hmm. So it's like those were the bigger influences. Maynard Ferguson, Woody Herman, Count Basie, Lionel Hampton, the vibes player. We saw him play a a number of times over in Westport. So those were those were kind of the early guys that uh, um, got me going in jazz in general, you know. Um, the, I did, I late high school, early college, then it became Charlie Parker, you know, mm. was the big guy at first, Yeah, you know, on, 
an alto saxophone. Little Grover Washington Jr. He was a he was. A, sometimes he gets a knock now as being the father of smooth jazz. Mm. But like he he was uh, he was a terrific saxophone player, you know, jazz mm. saxophone player. Those guys come to mind really quickly at first because right. yeah. I was an alto sax player at first. It wasn't until college that I went over, you know, until music school that I went over to. Uh, Tenor saxophone. And right. Tenor is my main saxophone that I play now all the time. Right. You know. Yeah. Um, so that those are some thoughts on that. So, yeah. uh, did you immediately like immediately like jazz, or was it sort of like a slow process for you? I. My first records. Should we talk about that? Sure. A little bit. Let's it's, do it. A good time. The first records I ever bought or listened to were uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Mm. Um, one of the, well, I, I'm jumping ahead maybe, but one of the songs you asked about, uh, Jane, we'll talk about it more later, but James Taylor mm. early on. Uh, in my father's record collection, my father is the one, that's where, I think that's where jazz got in my ear though. That's, you know, where it maybe was more subliminal at that time when right. I was young. Yeah. But I listened to music on the radio. Like in the uh, 70s, in the early 70s, like I had the radio on all the time. And the radio back then um, played everything. If you put on a pop radio station, you could hear a Motown song by... Uh, Marvin Gaye's early Stevie Wonder. Then it would go, then it play a Led Zeppelin song, and then it play a James Taylor song, mm. and then it would play like some country artists, like a Glenn Campbell or something. And it was all kinds of music. So I kind of, I'm not one of those guys that say I like everything, but early right. on I heard a lot of different kinds of music. You know that when I hear it now, I still like it. Right. You know? Yeah. I still like some of that stuff. So that's a little, I like the Allman Brothers. Mm. When we had my first cassette, when I first learned how to drive, uh, first music I heard in my car was a, 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 an Allman Brothers cassette, you know? Mm. So that, that's, a, that's, that's a little bit of what it was. Okay. Then. Okay. So... When you mentioned to me in your bio that you joined a local group at nine, what what band was that? That was the Fife and Drum Corps. That was a group okay. called the Bishop Seabury Fifers and Drummers that were located <laughs> over in Easton. Okay. Um, they were sponsored by a church over there. It was Christ Church over in Easton, okay. which is still there. Uh, the Fife and Drum Corps is long gone, mm. but... Uh, we participated all throughout uh, Connecticut and uh, some parts of New York State and Pennsylvania. You know, in revolution, it was it was a uh, really strongly authentic um, Revolutionary War uh, right. based group. Right. Um, and I learned a lot, but but I learned, Sean, I learned everything. Uh, I didn't have sheet music. They taught you with uh, numbers. So it'd be like giving you a trumpet part and it'd say one, one and two, one and three, open, you know, or, you know, Yankee Doodle, one and two, one and two, 
one or, you know, or something <laughs> like that. And that's how I learned to play the violin. You yeah. hear other guys play it, and then you had your numbers, so you knew that that's how you learned the fingerings. Yeah. And then you learned it all kind of by rote and by ear. Yeah. So, and of course, that followed into the jazz thing as well. That's yeah. probably why, to this very day, I don't like to. I can re I read music pretty well, obviously, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, I prefer learning a song and then getting rid of the music and playing it. Right. You know, off the yeah. How fast does it take you to learn something like that? Uh, depends. Not to get too musically technical, but if it's uh, if it's diatonic. Mm. You know, if it stays in one key, you know, I can learn the song pretty quickly now. You know, I don't have perfect pitch or anything. I've got, you know, I've got pretty good, I've got pretty good pitch. Right. You know, I've got a pretty good relative pitch, um, which fails me at times. <laughs> as, it, as it probably does with all musicians. But I instinctively know usually if I'm out of tune and stuff. But, right. Um, right. And yeah. if I'm listening to a group, you know, I could usually say, you, well, you know, you've worked with me. I know, I usually can pick out, I know who's playing the wrong notes and the mm. wrong rhythms. Right. Stuff like that. Yeah. You know? But uh, learning a song, I'm actually going with my own practicing right now, uh, honing my ear and my ability to play in all keys, you know. I'll, I'll learn a song and then I'll play it through all the keys. Right. Just to work that aspect of practicing. Um, what was it like to study at UB, University of Bridgeport? Oh, that was a wonderful experience. You know, you know, when I was in high school, Sean, I didn't think I was going into music. You know, I was getting more and more into music, and I and when I was at the high school, I participated in every music group they had. Right. You know, I was in the concert choir. Uh, um, male chorus, jazz band, concert band, you know, anything that you could, nowadays they don't give you the latitude to be able to do that. Right. Uh, but back then I was in every music group I could be in, but I didn't think I was going to go into music. Mm. I, when I graduated, you know what my high school yearbook says? It says future hospital administration. Hmm. So wow. I was actually thinking that I wanted to be in somehow involved in accounting and, and business and, Things. So I was actually uh, an accounting major for two years, but I but I was in it and I did okay at it. I was getting good grades, right. but I said this is not what I want to do with my life. Yeah. I didn't want to sit at it. Yeah, you know, not that there's anything wrong with it. In some <laughs> ways, I wished I had done that, but right. uh, but uh, I didn't want to sit at a desk. I, it, that's not was my personality. So right. I was practicing more and more, uh, and then I transferred to music school. Yeah. And uh, in Connecticut at the time, you could go to different schools and, um, you know, you had Westcon, you had Hart, you had Wesleyan, you had uh, 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 the University of Bridgeport, right. uh, Central, uh, it all had music programs, but uh, UB at the time was the only school that really had a bona fide jazz program mm. and that's what i want that's as a saxophone player that's what i want i i wasn't interested in classical saxophone mm. which is which is nice i admire guys that play classical saxophone i had to play some i had to you know practice that music but it, it never 
and never appealed to me very much. So I got into uh, play, playing uh, jazz there. There was wonderful uh, players there. It's like when people think of University of Bridgeport now, they go, they had a music program? They <laughs> people don't even know they had them. But in the 70s and into the early 80s, right. it was rocking. It mm. was quite a program and produced some wonderful musicians who are still in our area. Uh, one of my best buddies uh, was uh, Connecticut uh, Music Teacher of the Year a few years ago, a guy named John Mastriani. He was my section mate in the band there. Right. And he's uh, a wonderful jazz uh, educator, you yeah. know. Uh, Dave Weckl was the drummer. Anybody that's out there into drumming, uh, Dave Weckl is now considered one of the greatest drummers of all time, mm. period. Mm. Uh, he was the drummer in our jazz ensemble. So we had some wonderful musicians there. The director was a guy named Neil Slater. Neil was there, and then the school uh, ran into some financial difficulties and got taken over by the briefly by the church of sun young moon uh it was a bad deal in the mid to late 80s i believe uh and neil uh got hired by the uh university of north texas mm. which anybody that you know like north texas that probably has one of the uh, considered historically the the greatest college jazz program in history you know? yeah yeah uh, might get some arguments there but uh but pretty much, you know. Yeah. Uh, so he went and taught at the University of North Texas for years and years. Um, but but it, it was a wonderful. I got to I got to play with guys like Clark Terry and Jerry Mulligan and Bob Brookmeyer there. Yeah. Uh, to be on the be on the stage and trade solos with Clark Terry mm. and Jerry Mulligan. Uh, I'll never. I'll ne that's still the huge highlight of uh, my music life. So. Right. so once you left uh, UB and you decided to go finish uh, and get your master's at WestCon, was it your plan all along to become a teacher? No. Uh, um, and when I was at the University of Bridgeport, I was in the music ed program. Right. But I think I might have been a little like you. You know, I said, I, I don't know if I want to be a teacher. Yeah, you know, I said I, I. So it was a day like today. It was this beautiful, beautiful spring day, and I was sitting in the most boring educational psychology class. And at that point in time, I had enough credits to graduate with a performance degree. Right. I said, "That's it. I, I'm not going to get my teaching degree." So I I uh, went and put in the. I dropped the head psych <laughs> class. And I switched my major over to the performance major. Right. I got my performance degree. I think I did my uh, degree recital the following semester mm. and graduated with my performance degree. Uh, and it wasn't until years later when I went back and finished and got my uh, teaching degree. I taught in the music business for years. Yeah. Well, I've not taught in the music business. I've worked in the music business for years. Records, tapes. Uh, CDs when they first came out that's a whole story in itself <laughs> so but uh, but but gigged like crazy played like crazy yeah so, uh, times were so different then Sean uh, right. you know I sound so old now but it doesn't seem like that well, it doesn't seem like that long ago yeah you know but 
in the 80s and 90s, live music was part of every function, mm. part of every anniversary party, part of every wedding, you know. So gigs were plentiful. I was playing constantly. Right. This time of year in May, and this is not an exaggeration, I played four weddings on a weekend, four gigs on a weekend. Damn. And that would continue all through May and June uh, and then into the summer. And I'd be playing some nights. Uh, there was a place over near Sikorsky Airport, by the way, uh, up on the hill where uh, where it's now Oak Village. It's now a um, senior citizen residency. But up there, there used to be a restaurant there. I'd play there six nights a week, plus do weddings on the weekends. So for musicians back in those days, they, they call them the golden years now, you know, <laughs> yeah. because there were so many opportunities to play. Now, granted, that wasn't jazz. We were playing pop music. I mean, we were playing the village people and funky <laughs> town and all that stuff, you know. So, but still, you know, for musicians, uh, we were playing like crazy. Yeah. So that was a huge part of my income back then. Right. So and put a lot of bought a lot of pairs of shoes a lot of sneakers for the kids back in those days when did you decide to become a teacher um there was i had gone a long period you know a number of years wishing and regretting that i hadn't gotten my ed degree right because a lot of the guys and and uh, ladies that i graduated with were all teaching and I said, man, I should have I should have gotten that teaching degree. Yeah. So um, I don't remember the exact moment, but I could see the signs along the way that the music business was changing. You know, CDs came in; they were popular, but then um, the iPod came out, yeah. and I knew that stuff was changing. I just could feel it and I felt like my future in that business was not there I wasn't going anywhere so I wasn't gonna go out on the road I wasn't gonna uh, I had opportunities but you know I had a family uh, I was firmly based in in town so uh, I had an opportunity to go back and get my teaching degree so I did right I did it through a program they I don't even know if the program still exists it's called the alternate route to certification where you can go and in a, a intensive it was the most intense period of my life right. go back to school and and get your certification so i got it and then was lucky enough to get a job teaching over in west haven mm. uh, and uh taught there for about 12 years and then found out a position about a position in New Canaan. So, and then been teaching in middle school in New Canaan for about uh, 13 years or so. Right. Okay. And then taught the, the Trumbull band camp program where I met you. Yeah. Uh, me and uh, Tom Whitmore and Dave Turchek and all those folks, you know, so well, yeah. uh, we, I've been teaching in that for, it's over 20 years now. Yeah. Okay. Although, sadly, uh, it's not official, but I don't think it's going to be happening this summer. Right. Uh, 
there isn't any official news, but I don't, I, I don't think Mr. Witt would be upset if I was to uh, <laughs> think that, you know. Right. He said this thing. So. But yeah. that's kind of that whole, that whole story. Okay. You know? But, Sean, all I've really... I like. To, I don't want to give the listeners any wrong ideas. No. All I've really, all I've really ever wanted to do is like play music. Right. You know. So anything right. in my life since I've been like young, I wanted to be an athlete though. Oh, okay. I did want. To be, I did want to be an athlete, but I was never big enough. I was never fast enough, and. Uh, so that's how, I, you know, but music, uh, I found success in that. So I got more and more passionate about that as the years have gone on. Right. Yeah. So as you were playing through uh, your career and you've played with um, like a bunch of amazing musicians, I was fortunate to bump into Wynn Marsalis once and it was amazing and got to meet oh. him and that was crazy. Um, have you ever been starstruck? Such I was such an inspiration to so many players and such a, you know, sometimes he'll get a knock, you know, people will knock him and say, how can you knock him? Yeah. He's, he's inspired so many musicians and he's, he's such a wonderful musician, you yeah. know, and such a great, uh, uh, spokesperson for the music, yeah. you know? Yeah. He just lost his dad recently. You're probably aware of that. Yeah. And to this, to the to this virus too. So. Right, yeah, which is horrible. I, and I feel like when I met him, it was just this surreal experience for me, because he had been a classical hero of mine. He was a jazz hero of mine. Yeah. Um, yep. Have you ever been starstruck like that before? Well, it took me. Did you feel it at when you first met him? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. did you you realized it right away? I think I realized I think it right I'm away. Probably a little too young. Okay. Maybe a little too young to really appreciate the magnitude of it. But now, uh, thinking back, when I met Duke Ellington and shook his hand uh, and got his autograph. Yeah. It was over at the Shakespeare Theater, which burnt down a couple of years ago over mm-hmm. there in Stratford, Sean. Yeah. Uh, it was one of his uh, last performances. Uh, it was in 1972, I think. Yeah, I think I got that right. I think it was right. 1972, February of 72. It's either 71 or 72. But um, I was, a, Sean, I was, a, a, I think I was a sophomore in uh did you know mrs forshaw i think i did she was the principal she was a principal over there she was my uh social studies teacher and we got the word when duke ellington died but uh i i digress a little bit but um he in retrospect was probably the single most famous music person awe-inspiring music person that I've ever been in the presence of. Yeah. We snuck into his dressing room. They didn't have uh they didn't have the security that they have nowadays. So me and two of my friends we, we snuck into his snuck down into his dressing room to meet him. 
and uh, in the pantheon of musicians, uh, I don't know if there's, besides Louis Armstrong, who I was not lucky enough to see, right. uh, I don't think there's a bigger uh, uh, music person in our country besides Duke Ellington. Mm -hmm. So when you say that, that's probably, that's probably the person right. that I immediately think of. Okay. Well, what was it like to study in New Orleans? I think that was a, a huge part of your bio. What was the, uh, the culture it, like there? It's become almost central in my music. Hmm. Um, how much time do we have? Because <laughs> <laughs> I could go on about this No, you can, you can I, talk I'll about it. I'll try to get to the essence of it. Okay. You asked about, you know, you talked about me getting my master's degree. Right. Uh, in music school. Music school, pretty, you know, in jazz. We pretty much started at Charlie Parker and worked our way forward through Miles, through Coltrane, yeah. and all the current stuff. Back then... Uh, the Brecker brothers had just come on the scene. Michael Brecker, David Sanborn, Randy mm. Brecker. They had just come on the scene. That was our world. We talked about Louis Armstrong, talked about New Orleans a little bit right. uh, in jazz history class, but it might have been one or two nights. Uh, never studied their music. Never really played their music when I was in music school. In retrospect, it was a travesty that we weren't exposed to and made to play this music and study the music. I mean, it'd be like going, like you being a, uh, oh, let's say a classical pianist and not playing any Bach, mm. you know, yeah. starting with, just starting with Beethoven and working with, you know, and not, you know, that's what it's, to my, in my mind, that's what it was. So, uh, and I don't blame the, in retrospect, I don't blame the professors. That, that's the way it was back then. Yeah. Um, you know, in the uh, mid to late 70s. Um, but in when I was in studying my master's degree, I had to do my master's thesis or my master's project. Right. And, and we were able to choose from a variety of subjects. And my professor pushed me towards, he says, Chris, I think you really would enjoy doing your work on Louis Armstrong and his hot fives and hot sevens. Mm. Sean, it changed my life. I mean, I know that sounds big, but it really did because yeah. it exposed me to some music that I really hadn't dug into. I knew it was there. I knew it was famous. I knew that, you know, that's where it was the early origins of the music and stuff like that. And, uh, but uh, we dug into that and, uh, and that led me to New Orleans, right. his birthplace. Mm. Uh, I went down there for something they have. It was actually a camp. It's a trad jazz. You know, they that's a nickname now for that kind of music because people don't like to use the term Dixieland anymore. Yeah. Uh, but they they uh, traditional jazz, traditional early jazz. Traditional. And I went down there uh, and went to a camp for it. It was a camp for adults. Um. And you played all that music and got to play at Preservation Hall, got to uh, mar uh, do a second line parade on the streets uh, and go out to the clubs and hear the proponents and great players of the music 
um, and stuff like that. So, uh, and I've been down there a bunch of times since then and have made friends down there and uh, made friends with some of the muse musicians. I've played in a, a number of the clubs now. Uh, and these people actually know me, you know, it's, uh, they know me by name. We stay in touch and right. I have op open invitations to play whenever I go down there and stuff. So, um, that music, Sean, uh, there's a whole repertoire of it. There's a whole early repertoire that like, uh, in order to effectively play with them, you got to know the repertoire. Mm. They sit you know, in the clubs, they sit there and they don't have any music stands. They don't have any stands in front of them. You know, you sit down with them and they call a tune and you, you got to know the repertoire. And it has a certain style to it. You know, you can't be blowing, you know, uh, uh, Miles Davis licks or Freddie Hubbard licks over it, you know, mm. or playing bird or train and stuff like that, you know. So it's been quite a study for me. Right. I, I it really rein, reinvigorated my playing, you know. So, so I you... answer the question. <laughs> I, think I, go, I think I keep zooming off into other areas. But... No, um, no, I need to ask you this now because I I do want to bring it up. You are in a band. The band is called the Blue River Band Jazz Band, and I wanted to mention yeah. that you can find it on his Facebook page, Facebook.com/slash The Blue River Band. Or www.thebluriverband.com. Um, right. What do you, what do you enjoy most about being in this band? Well, this is a band. You know our area. Yeah. There's not a lot of music around here. You know, most. You know, when I, and again, I've been playing around here for years and years and years. Nobody played this music. There were right. a couple guys, you know, uh, down the. Uh, especially down in the, uh, uh, I say down, it's actually up in the, uh, <laughs> Guilford, down that vicinity that, uh, and they used to have uh, Definitely. a hot steam jazz festival and Essex down that way, old Saybrook uh, down there. Uh, there were some musicians down there that played the music, but, but overall in our area, there weren't very many musicians that played that music. So when I got into it, I said, okay, I'm just going to put together my own band that plays that music, that's dedicated to playing the music. And uh, so I kind of, I'm the one that kind of picks all the tunes. And we have a big repertoire now. Yeah. There are no gigs now. We got a bunch of our gigs canceled on us. And, right. Um, but I'm slow, but sure. It's been hard to, not easy to find musicians that uh, are into the music. I know plenty of musicians who can play it. If I put down the music in front of them, they can sight read it. It's the music's Sean, not overly uh, technically difficult, you know, yeah. uh, but it does require knowledge of the style. There's a uh, wonderful, and I highly recommend it to anybody that seems like they might have an interest in it. There's a guy named Vince Giordano. And um, he has a band called the Nighthawks, and they play in New York City. Mm. And um, he, the word he uses is hip. The music is hip, but it's an acronym for historically informed performance. Right. 
and uh, so you can play a Louis Armstrong song, but in order to really play it, you have to know the style. It's just like any. It's just like all kinds of styles of music. You know, if you go and uh, if you play Beethoven and you swing the eighth notes, <laughs> it's not gonna, you know, it doesn't work. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's just a real simplistic way of putting it. But, right. Um, yeah. But that's but I formed the group so we could play uh, that kind of music. You know, it's usually it's not that it's limited, but it's uh, I would say from the early 20th century into the early 1930s. Okay. And it's uh, New Orleans, uh, early jazz, Armstrong, King Oliver, uh, right up to around early Count Basie stuff, early Kansas City stuff. OK, so. Okay. And and it's limited now because like uh, traditional jazz, a lot of those traditional jazz groups had like uh, three horns and uh, somebody like either playing tuba or bass and maybe piano or uh, you know uh, drummer. But now now I'll go out with just myself and the piano player. A guy named Matt T. Champlain is a, a guy I play with a lot. He's an amazing, wonderful piano player. Uh, and he's very much into the uh, um, Jelly Roll Morton, Fats Waller, mm. uh, early Duke Ellington stride piano players, and uh, James P. Johnson, of course, and uh, music like that. So he's a wonderful fit with me because I'm studying that music and we like a lot of the same things. So right. we uh, do a lot of duo performing with it, stuff like that. So for those who struggle to improvise, how would you recommend them to work on it? In in any style or this style or like early jazz? How about in any style? Oh my goodness. Well, you have to have a certain Well, you know back in the day when we were in the band camp, you know, uh, <laughs> you have to have a certain level of uh, technical expertise on their on your instrument, right? You know, but you were always good because you listened to music. You know, you had at least an idea. You know, uh, it might have been coming from a different place. You know, maybe you you I the thing I always remember with you is, and you're probably still into it <laughs> because we both have a we you know we both have a strong admiration for john williams mm. his music's infused with jazz all over the place oh yeah you go to the cantina band from star <laughs> wars that's jazz you know what i mean yeah. you, you wouldn't have had that without the rhythms of louis armstrong you know uh when you study armstrong then you realize oh that's where duke got it that's where john williams got it that's where count where benny goodman got it from you know yeah. you, you realize where where it came from um so what am i saying i'm saying you know i think i had it in my ear to improvise early because i listened to a lot of that music i heard it you know and when we, when we say improvising that's that has a big you know um not criteria but a big that's a big word too because it encompasses a lot they say that they say that bach was a great improviser 
Yeah. Now he didn't improvise in the jazz style, but he improvised. Um, and I started improvising when I was young, playing in the fife and drum corps, not even knowing what I was doing. I was just I just enjoyed taking my instrument and making melodies in my head. Right. You know. Yeah. And I I like now I equate it to uh, when I do it more structured. I equate it to giving a student a piece of paper, and but I only give them three colors. Hmm. I said, use these three colors and draw me a picture, you know. And I do the same thing when teaching improvising. I said, I'm going to teach you some improvising, but I'm only going to I'm going to confine you at first, yeah. and just give you these few notes to play. Yeah, and uh, I, it, it's hard to make improvising you know you can improvise within a structure oh yeah or you can improvise with no structure just sit and play i'm sure you've done it i just take my horn out sometimes and just start playing stuff you know yeah let's see if i can make my horn you know mimic the motion of the the bee that's outside my window or something i don't know right you yeah. know yeah. Uh, okay. But uh, improvise. What does improvise mean? To make it up, right? To yeah. create on the spot. To create in the moment. But in jazz, you know, in, in um, when we talk about improvising, we're usually talking about having a structure, and then learning to create within that structure. Yeah. So it's also the knowledge of the instrument too in a way you just have to yeah, know you have to have some facility yeah you know um and the more facility you have the easier it is to get what's up in your head out on your instrument right yeah you know that's a light that's a lifelong thing like so i'm still trying to figure that out like for trumpets you know, I have my, i'll try to have my students but they're all inhibited everybody's inhibited at first i'll say sing Sing a little thing. Sing something. You know, and I say, can you play that on your instrument now? Yeah. You know, and they go, oh, no. First of all, they don't want to sing it out. <laughs> and then they, then they, you know, to struggle and find it on their instrument. Yeah. You know, so, but uh, improvising it, you know. When you're teaching it to a group of young kids, you have to try to make it as you, you can't make it sound like this mysterious vague thing because you want them to take that brave step and to try it right and that's 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 the hardest thing and once they start once they get a taste of it you know and you've heard me i say i say there are no mistakes just go for it mm. the story i always tell is a uh, you know he's one of my oldest friends, he played saxophone in high school, Trumbull High School, jazz band, you know, and he had no idea what he was doing. <laughs> and it came time for a solo. And I'm strong when I say no idea, yeah. he had no idea. <laughs> and it came time for his solo. All he did was uh, he stood up and he went, and I and I'm gonna mimic this the best way I know how. He went <laughs> just up and down like he, 
your trumpet and just go, <laughs> and that's what it was. Sean, the audience loved it. <laughs> the audience go, yeah, go, you know. Yeah. So, but because lots of times the audience doesn't know. That's why I said, keep the, if you're not sure what you're doing, just move on to some other notes, you know. Don't <laughs> hang on that one bad note, you know. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes the, they, you'd be surprised, and you know this, I know you know this, the audience knows less than, than you do up there mm. on the stage, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so, again, I think I digressed there, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> but that's, those right. are my thoughts on improvising, you right. know. You want to try to, on a more advanced level as a musician, you want to be able to have some kind of coherent telling a story. That's the word they always use. Tell a story with your instrument. Definitely. I'm not a big fan of guys that want to impress me with their technique and everything. I want to hear a good tone with some clear thoughts. It's just like speaking, isn't it? Yeah. It's if, if, if I if I get, if I keep talking like this and I don't stop and I'm going on and on and on and on and, on and I keep going and I don't you know that's not I don't know I I don't enjoy that it's I not interesting it. yeah and there's a lot of musicians out there that have amazing technique I wish I had their technique mm. but I don't I'm not particularly moved or impressed by their uh, by their music. You know, yeah. And the older I get, the older I get. I keep going back and listening to some of these classic early musicians, uh, where the music came from, where it derived, and uh, that's the stuff that really moves me now. Yeah. You know? Something I remember from Bandcamp was when you started hearing someone just, and there's this there's this technique that saxophones have where they can just. Flap, flap their tongues up against their reeds and they make yeah. this thumping yeah, sound. Yeah, yeah. And I remember you going, stop that. That's not even like... <laughs> yeah, it's sound. It's like ugly sound, not music, right? I know. Yeah. And you being like I that... Tell my, I still tell my students, I say, let's try to make music. I know you don't... You know, you're not an accomplished player yet. But let's try to make music, not noise. Yeah. There is a difference. In my mind, you know, yeah. yeah. So we can all make noises with our instruments. Yeah. So before we go on to the next segment, do you want to introduce your musical tastes? My musical tastes. Oh yeah. Meaning, what I like the most. Yeah. What do you dig the most? Hmm. Well, I'll tell you something. You, obviously, I like jazz music, right. but jazz is, we both know, and the listeners know, hopefully, jazz is a huge term. Mm. That encompasses, you know, that encompasses coming up to uh, the first, the first official jazz recording was made in 1917. So we're over 100 years now into jazz. Right. That's a lot of different styles and periods of jazz music. I don't like all of them. Yeah. I'm not interested in all of them. I can appreciate a lot of them, but I don't particularly like all of them. Yeah. Um, 
I'm not a big fan, for example, of uh, smooth jazz music. I've heard some good music, and yeah, and, that, that, and, and again, not all, but I'm not a big fan of that. I'm not a big fan of what they call free jazz music um, that came out in the early 60s. I'm not an, uh, and not that it's bad. It's again, you asked me what my tastes were, what yeah. I liked. Yeah. Um, I'm not an Ornette Coleman mm, lover. Yeah. I'm not a big fusion lover. I never was, even in music school. Um, Mahavishnu Orchestra, Chick Corea's Return to Forever, uh, Weather Report. Mm. Um, they're fantastic, but that's not what I listen to. I have it in my music collection. Right. I have a lot of that music in my music collection, but I'm not big fans of that. It's not what I find myself listening to. Right. You know, um, when it comes to jazz. Um, there's even some, like, say, oh, you love the swing era. Yeah, I like a lot of the swing era, but I don't like all the swing era. Yeah. I don't like all Glenn Miller. Yeah. Like, I, some of his stuff was, uh, for his time, was extremely commercial. Yeah. Which was the same as some of the music today. Yeah. I... Uh, today, a lot of today's music, Sean. I uh, don't get, you know, I, there's very, and maybe it's my age, yeah. but there's very little I like now right. that's considered, but some of it's more uh, shock value music than it is for, uh, um, uh, I like some of uh, Snoop Dogg's stuff. I thought that was catchy, you know, like as far as rap and hip hop and yeah. some of the things my uh, kids listen to in the nineties, you know, it still has, I have a, a certain amount of affection for some of that stuff when I hear it right. because it more reminds me of a certain period. Uh, I like certain country music that I've heard yeah. uh, because it has mo it's, there's melody, um, there's melody, there's harmony. I like music that has melody. I like music that has harmony, good rhythm. Um, that's what does it for me. Okay. You know, well-crafted uh, melodies and harmonies and things like that right. it doesn't have to be complex either yeah you know yeah because most of the like early jazz that i've been studying and working on and like it's not incredibly complex harmonically or melodically right rhythmically is another story though yeah you listen to uh the music of uh i keep going back to it is armstrong's music which i strongly urge any musicians out there if you haven't checked him out early Louis Armstrong I'm talking mm, about yeah from the 20s into the 30s you know that that period of time especially uh, you need to check it out because if I write out some of the rhythms for you you're, you're gonna say whoop you know <laughs> they're 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 not easy you know and it really improves your sense of rhythm you know, by studying that music, it has mine, you know, for sure. Right. That's one way to cure you of the, you know, like a, a player that runs a lot of eighth notes when they're improvising. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Definitely. Go to school on Louis Armstrong for a while and that'll cure you mm. because it'll all of a sudden open up space and create rhythm in your music and stuff like that. Right. So, but uh, like I said, my you asked me about my tastes. I mean, I I still love James Taylor. 
Right. I love uh, the music of Carol King mm. that came out. Right. They were they were buddies. Uh, we're going to talk about that music shortly, but yeah. uh, they were a friend. You know, Carly Simon. Um, yeah. The Beatles. Mm-hmm. I, 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 again, what, what's in that music? Melody, harmony, rhythm, groove. I love all the all the Motown stuff. You know. Right. Yeah. All they they all have that central, you know, melody, harmony, rhythm thing going on. Right. So. So, Mr. Coulter, we're going to take a little bit of a break. Okay. And uh, we'll be right back. So stay with us. And we're back with Mr. Coulter's playlist. And the first song on his playlist is West End Blues by Louis Armstrong. And we were just talking about him just literally seconds ago. Uh, So Mm -hmm. when was the first time you heard of Louis Armstrong? (laughs) We didn't plan that. Yeah, it, it it was kind of the best segue we could possibly hope for. Um, how did you first hear of Louis Armstrong? Uh, well, the viewers can't see, but I did bring it for you because I was thinking of you and I said, I said, ah, because I was going through some stuff. We were talking about my early influences and the parents' music in the house. Right. One of the first records we, that I remember in my house was this one. And Mm. it was Louis Armstrong, Hello Dolly. Hello Dolly. Which was from 1964, and did I get that right? Oh, I'll be embarrassed if I got that wrong. I think it was 64. 64. uh, He came out with that record, and it displaced the Beatles on the charts. He knocked the Beatles off the uh, charts. Wow. Um, And so I remember it being played in the house, and uh, all I knew about Louis Armstrong at that time, Sean, is he was this guy that was bigger than life, yeah. uh, had a huge smile. Everybody loved him. They called him Satchmo, and he had that gravelly voice, you know. <laughs> and uh, I just remember Hello, Dolly, you know, and it started out with a, a banjo lick. Mm. There's a whole story be, behind the song, uh, which is fun stuff. Maybe we'll do a podcast someday if you're up for it, just on Louis Armstrong. Sure, you got uh, it. I give, uh, I've been giving lectures and presentations lately, you know, and we could talk about it. But, uh, so that was, you know, the voice was in my head. You know, his trumpet playing really wasn't in my head at that time. Right. Uh, He was on TV a lot. He was on uh, variety shows. And back in the day, they had a lot of uh, variety shows where you'd have a music act and you'd have a comedy act and you'd have a showbiz you know singers come on and stuff like that right uh and he was on all the shows uh and then he passed away uh, in the early 70s mm. uh 1971 he died i never got a chance to see him right uh which i would have loved to have um and it wasn't into and i knew about west end blues but again it wasn't until i was in college when i really studied it right and I mean, not college, uh, when I did my master's degree, when I studied it, hmm. but before my, uh, get my dates wrong, but there was, um, a show, uh, the documentary. Did you ever see the Ken Burns documentary on jazz? I don't think so. You got to get that. Right. 
get it, go over to the Trumbo Library, get it. They got it on DVD. <laughs> Whenever it opens, I'm, I'll be right there. But uh, but uh, you should you should check that out. Right. And uh, and they did this whole thing on West End Blues, and it really struck me. I'm like, whoa. It's considered by many to be, and myself included now, the most important three minutes of music in our country's history. Mm. Uh, it was when, it was a document of when jazz went from being a fad, you know, the musical fad of the day is in 1928, mm. you know, to people waking up and going, that's an art form. It, 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 they realized that jazz was an art form created in our country uh, and Louis Armstrong was the leading proponent genius of the art form right you know it's the traditional 12 bar blues starts out with a uh, uh, work down in advance wasn't improvised you know he worked it out over many uh, sessions uh this this remarkable cadenza which to this day uh is difficult to play for trumpet players yeah. uh, not too hard to play on saxophone uh, <laughs> but it's it's not an easy thing in fact they just had you know people are keeping themselves busy they had a challenge going on on facebook the the west end blues challenge yeah it was going all over the place <laughs> and guys would play their their version of learning how to play the cadenza opening yeah. cadenza on West End Blues. It's, um, it was with his working band. Uh, they called it the Hot Five. It wasn't the original Hot Five, but um, it groups him. It was Lewis. It was a, uh, uh, people don't need to know the names, but banjo, uh, uh, a guy who played, the drummer played uh, an instrument. They were like finger, they were like hand cymbals. Right. Uh, and then uh, the great Earl Hines played piano on it, uh, and a musician named Jimmy Strong played clarinet. Mm. Uh, there's a trombone player on it, um, and it was a traditional twelve bars. Music. You guys out there that know about music knows that the traditional blues form is in twelve measure segments. So it starts out with the cadenza, uh, and then it goes through a number of cycles of. Uh, 12, 12 bars played uh, by the various instruments. Right. Um, it's stunning. It's a stunning piece of music. And here is West End Blues by Louis Armstrong.
Mm. And I would totally play more of that, but I do have to go through some more questions. Uh, I was going to mention to you the opening of it. The opening starts with uh, fanfare, like you mentioned. It's the cadenza sort of like thing. And then it moves into this sort of like slow, mellow sound. And, um, and I wanted to ask you, what do you really like about the sound that he sort of creates when he does this? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. That song was written, by the way, by his mentor. Uh, we talked about his whole life, uh, King Oliver, Joe Oliver. Right. Uh, the, 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 passion, the passion comes in a little later. The beginning uh, of that sets, it's exciting. And then it's, and then, uh, there's wonderful, oh man, I'm struggling for words on it. Okay. It's like, uh, it changes throughout it. That's why I'm struggling for words because each chorus is different. Mm. You know, uh, he does like they do the the uh it's like a journey as and in fact uh, not to go off on another tangent but i'm actually doing uh, one of the projects i did for my master's work was provide a listening map for my students mm. where they could listen to the piece and then follow along chorus by chorus and notice when it changed and when each new instrument or each I should say each different instrument would have their turn soloing. Right. Okay. Um, you know, the, the, uh, trombone plays with long sustained notes, you know, and it's, uh, and then the, the interesting chorus with the, uh, clarinet trading, you know, it was one of the early, ideas of trading with another instrument and it was trading with armstrong who was just scatting yeah you know he was doing the scat singing he's one of the early guys that ever scat sang um a lot of people you need to know that he was equally influential as a trumpet player as he was a a vocalist Mm. Uh, he considered his trumpet playing and his voice to be one and the same and when you listen to and study his music and his recordings, you find that that's really true, that he sang as he played and he played as he sang. Right. Uh, so that chorus went through. And then you have this florid uh, piano solo by Earl Hines, who's one of the another geniuses of his instrument, mm. uh, where it's very florid. and does, But then all of a sudden he does the technique that he's known for. He was known as a trumpet playing piano player very rhythmically Mm. and then armstrong comes sweeping in with that sustained note you know that everybody goes whoa you know and he holds (laughs) the note out for oh i forget i i should know i've studied this i forget how did you count how many beats he held that note out john Mm. it's like it, it was it was at least you know uh 16 18 beats at that slow tempo you right know? yeah uh, and then it it's like it's like a journey and then it reaches its destination at the end there uh, yeah. 
is glorious. It's definitely glorious. They could glorious. only fit that much music on a, a record back in LP. those days. Right. So it, it was concise. It says it all in that in that uh, in that brief period of time. Right. You know, if there's one piece of music that should be required listening of every American, it's that one. Right. (laughs) (laughs) The next song you gave us is Satin Doll by Duke Ellington. And I've always enjoyed his music. I think that what you were saying earlier, his music defined a larger generation of sound that sort of came after him. He was our country's greatest composer. Certainly the greatest band leader. He mm. led a band longer than anybody in history. Mm. Uh, he kept his band working all through the Depression and all through the down times. Uh, it's said that, uh, how, they say, how did you keep the band together? He, he says, money. <laughs> he was able to pay them when other people couldn't pay their bands. Right. Because why? Because he had so much money coming in from song royalties. Uh, songs they written so that he was able to uh, keep the band going with that. Uh, Satin Doll is not my favorite Duke Ellington song by oh, okay. any stretch. Okay. Um, it's the first Duke Ellington song besides Take the A Train that I was aware of and knew. And when I first started playing in a band with friends of mine, it was a popular song to play. It was written later in his life. I forget the exact year, but it was written in the 1950s. It was one of his big hits. Um, it had words put to it by the great uh, lyricist Johnny Mercer. Not mm. the greatest lyrics in the world either. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. For Johnny Mercer, you know, Johnny right. Mercer was an amazing uh, uh, song uh, song lyricist, but these weren't his best lyrics, in my opinion. Right. Um, but uh, but. But Satin Satin Doll is, is, uh, and it also made me, when when you were asking songs, I said, well, I got to get a Duke tune in there. Right. Satin Doll had a lot of importance, you know, because it was one of the first ones I learned. uh, It's a standard 32 measure song form piece. Uh, But uh, also uh, Connecticut lost one of their, uh, one of their own this weekend. It was one of the, He's not a household name, but musicians in the area knew him. His name was Don Trenner. Hmm. And Don passed away this past Hmm. weekend at the age of 93. Hmm. Don was an amazing, amazing, a wonderful man, a a, a beautiful man, but also an amazing musician that had a background, a musical background, uh, second to none. Hmm. You know, he played with Charlie Parker and Chet Baker, but was also musical director for uh, Bob Hope, was on TV with the Steve Allen show. Mm. Uh, I could go on and on. Is Don Trenner, if anybody wants to right. take a look at the, you know, a, a truly historic figure from Connecticut, uh, he's one of them. Uh, I mentioned his name because of his passing, but also because uh, I played with him a number of times. And one of his go-tos, he loved Duke Ellington. You know, we mm. all do. If you're, if you're a musician in general, you know, you're you're bound to love something of Duke's. Right. You know, and he would go, he'd go into Satin Doll. He knew Satin Doll, so yeah. um, I thought of him as well with uh, with the song Satin Doll. Right. So, 
song. It's actually one of the first songs I learned how to play on jazz piano. I mean, I think that that's... Was it? Okay. Yeah, I think yeah. so, yeah. Uh, when, yeah. yeah. It's, I, it, it's like, I have, like I say, I've got other, do, as a saxophone player, I mean, I like, saxophone's good, but I have others that I like uh, probably more, you know? Right, uh, yeah. But they're, they're, they're all good. When I went to see him, I told you I went to see him in concert, right? And uh, that's what we all wanted to hear. Yeah. And luckily, he, you know, he he played that, so we were all happy. You know. Yeah. Uh, and without any further ado, here is Satin Doll, Duke Ellington. So I got to read you what is on this album. You have Duke Ellington, of course, but you have Dizzy Gillespie, you have Johnny Hodges, you have Jimmy Rushing, and Jimmy Jones. Crazy. Bunch of, bunch of hackers. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. Uh, everybody, want, everyone, everybody wanted to play with Duke, you know. It was oh, like... Yeah. Uh, uh, and it, it, that had to be, can you imagine mm. what a marvelous experience, you know? Yeah. Just as, as for all time, you know. What? That's a whole study on it, you know. Right. I've talked about, I've, I've gushed about Armstrong, but you could do the same with Duke, mm. you know. Um, yeah. There's so many facets of that. You know, oh yeah. From the 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 compositions, the arranging, and you get into Billy Strayhorn, and then you get into the musicians themselves that comprised that band over the years mm. and shaped the sound and the tone. You know, it, as you probably know, he wrote with the players in mind. Yeah. Uh, and you know, uh, did you know? You know what I found out recently with Duke? He never wrote a drum part. Interesting. He never wrote out his drum parts. Hmm. He always left it to the drummer to create. You know, so it's like, wow. It's, you know, sometimes he'd have to 
wake up his guys during the concerts and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know. Yeah. But uh, a lot of characters, a lot of characters in the band, but a lot of, boy, amazing, you know, Johnny Hodges, you know, Cat Anderson, you know, mm. Cootie, you know, Williams, oh my gosh. Cootie Williams, oh my God. Yeah, you go on and on, right? Mm. So, yeah. And I wanted to mention to you, here's just another funny story. Um, I think it was, there's a, in time at Bandcamp, I think we played this at some point. And for some reason, I kept calling it Satan Doll. I didn't know the difference <laughs> between that, that and Satin Doll. And every time I said that, you or Mr. Thornton would correct me and go, Sean, it's Satin Doll, not Satan Doll. <laughs> I didn't think I understood the way the 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 end of the yeah. satin actually worked. I didn't actually know what the different was, but again, I digress too. But I learned that way too. No, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, you know. um, You'll find out when you get older. It's it's this fabric that weaves its way through your life, you know. And then you know you're talking to me now, and you're like, hey, "I'm not that old yet." <laughs> I'm starting to like, you know, like all the stories and everything. And you're making me think of a lot of stuff. You yeah. did. Uh, don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing a lot at band camp. Right. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. That was a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Another great Duke Ellington piece. Yeah. Oh, there's so many. But oh also, some, some are hard to play too. Oh yeah. But also Even like. But also, like, you wouldn't know if it was him or Billy Strayhorn, right? You would have to sort of figure out Sometimes, who, yeah. You know. Yeah, and I got to admit, I'm not as studied to be... Billy Strayhorn stuff was generally a little, to my mind, a little more... Some of the more complex things. Oh, yeah. You know? Like, I think... Although A-Train wasn't, but some of the more complex tunes, like... Uh, uh, lush life and things like that you know mm. those those were those are they're hard songs chelsea bridge and stuff like that right yeah they're a little they're a little harder songs so the next song you gave us is called what are you doing the rest of your life uh by frank sinatra um when was the first time you heard frank My father played his music. You know, my father would talk about him because my father saw him in Bridgeport mm. singing with the Tommy Dorsey band. Mm. You know, yeah. it'd be like uh, Pleasure Beach Ballroom. You ever heard of those places? Sean, mm. anybody ever tell you about the Pleasure Beach Ballroom, the Ritz Ballroom? Uh, it used to be in uh, Bridgeport. Mm. Bridgeport used to, all the name acts used to come through uh used to come through Bridgeport and my father would talk about Frank Sinatra you know my father you know so he I, that's probably when I first heard him mm. but one of my best friends through school and through music school was a Sinatra fanatic and at the time I didn't get it I go I, go, I like Dean Martin better you know or something like that you know he goes no Sinatra and later on as I learned more about him right. and listened to more of his music, I realized, whoa, he's another one of our, the geniuses of American music. 
Uh, a lot of people think of, you know, uh, you know, swinging Frank Sinatra from Las Vegas. No, you got, he's another one. Of, he's like Armstrong in that you've got to, you know, don't talk just based on a little bit of knowledge. Because when you go into Sinatra, then you're really, that's, that's deep too, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, I didn't, again, almost like Ellington, I didn't pick rest of your life because you you said songs that had significance so like i uh right i wanted to get a sinatra in there because of my uh like he's one of the uh guys i revere in music um that song had significance because um it was my wedding song we danced to it when i got married mm. uh but uh it was one of the first when I started gigging Sean and playing in bands, right? Uh, I probably sang more than I played. And one of the first songs I learned how to sing was "What Are You Doing the Rest of Your Life." Do you know the song at all? Were you familiar with the song? I, I don't think so. It it's not an easy song. It goes through like four keys, four, <laughs> four or five keys. Yeah. Yeah, you hit the bridge on this song. You listen, you'll hear the the A section stays uh in a minor tonality and then the bridge starts shifting through keys. Um and it's really hard to play if you don't if you don't have the music in front of you, you know. Mm. Talk about your accidentals, you know what I mean? Right, so, yeah. but um when I first sang this on a gig, it was as a guest solo and the guy said hey do you know what are you doing the rest of your life come sing it with us and it was with a friend's band uh and i got up and i sang it and it was going really good and then i got up to the bridge and i froze <laughs> i forgot i forgot the words and the lyrics mm. bowed out so it was one of those moments in my life you know right but uh but that's why I picked this song. It's, it's written by a composer named Michel Legrand, okay. a French composer who wrote so, so, songs like Watch What Happens, Winds, Windmills of Your Mind, a theme from the summer of 42, a lot of beautiful songs. Um, and that's, I guess that's why I picked this song, right. you know, just because it had that certain amount of significance. And the way Sinatra sings it is just out of sight. Right. You know? And without further ado, here is What Are You Doing the Rest of Your Life? Frank Sinatra. Of your life 
North and south and east and west of your life. I have only one request of your life. That you spend it all with me. All the seasons and the times of your days. All the nickels and the dimes of your days. Hmm. I could sit here and listen to hours of Frank, I think. Um, which is, I think, something that is good for the soul, too. Um, I need to ask you about the title of the song. What do you think the title means? Well, the lyrics, if you go through the lyrics of the song, it asks that question all through it and talks about seasons and times. Uh, it's, it's, it, it, it's extremely expressive song. And that's why we chose it as we weren't the only ones. There are other people uh, that have used that as a wedding dance, you know, um, yeah. Through all my life, summer, winter, spring, and fall of my life, all I ever will recall of my life is all of my life with you. Hmm. Yeah. So it's just it's 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 uh, it's a deep tune. Yeah. You know, uh, he's uh, Sinatra stuff. That's not prime Frank, by the way, vocally. Right. You know, that's later in his career, you know. It's still beautiful. And the orchestrations and arrangements are, <laughs> they're, they're always top, top, top notch. Um, I don't know whether that was a Don Costa arrangement. I'm not sure who arranged that. Uh, but that that's, uh, that's gorgeous. I haven't heard that in a while. Hmm. That was fun to, that was fun to hear again. Yeah. I like the, the, uh, 50s Sinatra stuff, you know, mm. a lot of the uh, capital, they call it the capital years, you know, all the swinging arrangements by Nelson Riddle and stuff like that. But um, What would you say Prime Frank would be? That's what I, that's what I was just saying, in, in the in the 1950s. Look in the 50s, okay. Yeah, if you go to uh, the Frank of I've Got You Under My Skin. Right. Songs for uh, swinging lovers in that period of time, uh, that that Nelson Riddle's fifty stuff. Oh my gosh, that stuff is is so good because it's prime Frank and the arrangements are just uh, they're just tremendous. Right. You know. Yeah. Uh, that's me though. That's my take. That's what I call prime Frank Sinatra. Right. You know. Okay. He'd uh, gone. Uh, that's, we could do a podcast on him, Sean. Because <laughs> I could start going off on Frank. No, I know we can do we can do another he's two. Another guy that I he's another guy that I that I've studied. I always wanted Sean. If I, I think you're like this a little bit, maybe I'm wrong. I wish I could sing. Mm. I mean, I could sing. I could carry a tune, and I've done it tons on gigs and stuff like that right yeah. i never was blessed with those pipes <laughs> that sound that he gets that harry connick jr once called it that oh that sound that he gets you know <laughs> oh man 
Yeah. I used to sing along with his records in the car, you know, with his, you know, on my iPod or my cassettes or whatever I had with my CDs in the car right. and try to get that sound. Mm. And I just couldn't, I couldn't get, you know. So instead, like I've done it, I don't know if you ever tried, take one of his tunes, take a standard song and get the sheet music, you know, and mark in his phrasing mm. where he breathes. Yeah. And 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 start and do a study of how of his phrasing of the lyrics. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's a whole study in itself. They claim that he used to like uh train really hard to develop voice control and breath control so he could carry a phrase over a bunch of measures before he even uh, uh, took a breath. Right. And it's true, especially on some of his earlier recordings. You, you try to sing along with, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. He does, you know, what's new? How is the world treating you? You know, and he'd see, he'd see and he it. Like, when's he going to breathe, you know? I know. He was another master. Supposedly he had perfect pitch. He, like, could hear, like, a single note off in an orchestra mm. playing behind him. And you say, that French horn player is playing the wrong note. You know, supposedly. I, I don't know. Right, right. But another, another just brilliant, brilliant musician in our country. And he was a musician. You know, a lot of people think that I, oh, Frank, you know, again, the big Vegas guy and, the, you know, the bravado and stuff. But he was quite a musician. So the next song, we're actually going to take a little bit of a left turn here and check out Sweet Baby James, some James right. Taylor. Who introduced right. you to James Taylor? Well, this, I think, we did we talk about it earlier? Like some of my earliest recordings and records, things that I listened to uh, in the early 70s. Right. Uh, this was one of the first records I bought with my own money. Mm. Uh, it, I didn't buy any jazz records early on. Uh, and I, the cover is like just ingrained and etched in my head. And back in the day, you know, you'll get a, us older folks waxing nostalgic because uh, you'd get the record and it'd have four songs on one side and four songs on the other side and you'd put it down on the record player yeah. and you'd listen to those four songs and then you'd have to get up and turn it over to listen to the other four songs. Oh, yeah. And it was a physical product. You had it in your hand. Uh, there was this, uh, in addition to the music itself, there was this physical aspect of it and, and visual because you were reading it you saw the picture on the cover you uh read the notes on the back you you saw when it was made you saw who was playing on it uh carol king uh i can't you don't ask me everybody who was on it carol king played piano on it for example i think it came out in 1970 i think yeah. it came out in 1970 right uh, it was huge everybody wanted to play guitar Mm. You know, it was it was the rock and roll era anyhow, the, you know, late 60s into the 70s. But uh, 
coming out of the late 60s into the 70s right was this all of a sudden was the rise of the singer songwriter and james taylor was one of the guys that was at the forefront of that and everybody wanted to play guitar including me you know i wanted i didn't <laughs> but i wanted to play guitar and sean this is another guy that I, I, oh, if I could only sound like, oh, I want to sing, if I could only sing and sound like JT. But yeah. we listened to this record over and over and over again. I used to sit in a friend of mine's basement and uh, we'd have sodas and stuff and we'd just listen to these records over and over. Summer of 71, summer of 72, Came out in 70, yeah, those couple years, these records. Carol King's Tapestry came out in uh, in 71. And that was a huge record. Couldn't be any bigger than when her record came out. Right. So yeah. that's, what, that's, that's the significance of this record to me. Okay, well, here is Sweet Baby James by JT, otherwise known as James Taylor. Cowboy, he lives on the range. His horse and his cattle are his only companions. He works in the saddle and he sleeps in the canyons, waiting for summer, his pastures to change. And as the moon rises, he sits by his fire. Thinking about women and glasses of beer and Closing his eyes as the doggies retire He sings out a song which is soft but it's clear As if maybe someone could hear mm. So who is he singing about in this song? Okay. But he he wrote it about it, it was about um a child. Uh, okay. Uh, I'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> it was, I should know that. I should know that, and I did know that because I saw James Taylor perform a couple times, right. and uh, he talked about the origins of the song. You know, and um, and he was he, he talked about the he he uh, was looking at the baby and thinking of a little buccaneer. You know, he called it a little buccaneer, and he, he got thinking about like uh, uh, cowboy songs and stuff like that. And if right. you listen to that song, it has the lilt of an old timey folk song. It's a three four song. You don't hear that too many of those in popular music. You know, anything yeah. in three. Uh, but uh, yeah, and that became his name, nickname. Every, they all called James Taylor. Now they called him Sweet Baby James. You know? mm. So, and in fact, maybe there isn't actually wasn't actually uh, an actual person 
that was baby James, you know what I mean? Okay. It just may have been that. Okay. But, uh, I'm sure if you give me a second, I'll go on Wikipedia. Oh, you do that. Well, I, <laughs> I do that. I wanted to ask you, what makes him such an icon and such a legend? Oh, my goodness. Well, he's had an amazing long career. You know, any of these artists that we've talked about today, and I didn't do that on purpose, but they've really had um, long careers. Well, mm. as uh, one of them, I think I gave you, didn't, as in, didn't have long careers. But um, his music, uh, lyrically sound, harmonically really good, yeah. always recorded with the best musicians, um, you know, beautiful sound quality. He's an amazing guitar player finger style guitarist right and his voice just has a uh soothing um uh, maybe he wouldn't like it if i use that word soothing but it's true i mean he's got a beautiful voice impeccable impeccable sean impeccable pitch yeah you never i saw him live a couple times you never hear an out of tune note and there's no pitch correction like some of these current artists go out there with you know, live pitch correction and stuff like that. Mm. Sinatra, Armstrong, JT, you know, they, you know, uh, they were, they were and are fantastic musicians. He's, uh, he's, a, he's just, I, I just have so much respect for him. And a lot of, uh, you talk to a lot of musicians, they, his music may, may not be their favorite music, but they all respect him infinitely for his musicianship, right. you know. Yeah. Uh, so, but his music is always like I go. He's one of those guys, you know, old emotion, old, old, old sentimental Mr. Coulter. If I go see him in concert, um, he's one of those guys that you know he can he can bring me to tears with his music. You know, I connect with it that much. Right. Though, you know, and I know you've been to Tanglewood a bunch. I've always wanted to go see James Taylor at Tanglewood, but never have gotten to see him there. He, he's been at Tanglewood a bunch. He played at John Williams's birthday concert. Did he? It was, yeah. was mind-blowing. It was awesome. I saw him with the Pops on TV, with James Taylor with the Pops, and... Uh, he sang a couple, but he sang, he didn't do any of his songs. He did uh, some standards, like uh, Irving Berlin's The Way You Look Tonight. You know, he sang that. I think he sang almost like Being in Love right. uh, with the Boston Pops, you know. But again, he's another guy. I try to sound, I try to sing like him. I could get closer to James Taylor singing than I can uh, Sinatra. <laughs> <laughs> but, mm. I want to mention, I want to read... I, I don't like my own voice. <laughs> I I want to read some of the lyrics because they are virtually pure poetry. He writes, There is a young cowboy, he lives on the range. His horse and his cattle are only his only companions. He works in the saddle and sleeps in the canyons, waiting for summer, his pastures to change. I think that's... There's just so much... I mean, like, I've been listening and listening and doing this podcast for so long, but 
there is just something that just gravitates me toward lyrics now, but I don't know what it is, but his lyrics are so nice and so unique from any other artists I've ever listened to. They're meaning they're meaningful and they're clever. Yeah. He's going on, you know, those first bunch of words that you said say it say it again, Sean. You know, say those words again, Sean. There's like uh, Start me off. What are the words again? Sure. He starts out the song going, There is a young cowboy. He lives on the range. His horse and his cattle are his only companion. You know, uh, sleeps in the, was it pasture? Um, da, 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 da. Uh, he, he works in the saddle waiting. and sleeps in the canyons. Canyon. Waiting. And then, he's, and then he finishes the, the, uh, paragraph with he finishes the verse with waiting for the pastures to change yeah so there's the clever there's the you know because everything up to then is yeah okay yeah cowboy you know in the pasture but then he boom he flips that <laughs> one in there you know um, right yeah good night you moonlight ladies rock by your sweet baby baby james you know it's just you go on and on through his songs and lyrically, they're 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 well, he's very intelligent. He's a real smart guy too. You know mm. what I mean? He's like uh, he's very witty. Very you know, uh, he's an intelligent man as yeah. well. Um, and we can totally do another podcast on all of his music because oh he has an entire just genre of music. And uh, really wonderful, really wonderful. So we're gonna get to back in your own backyard with Billie Holiday and Lester Young. So who did you hear first, Lester Young or Billie Holiday? I'm hesitating because I'm trying. In the original recording, Billie Holiday comes in first, so Billie Holiday. Billy, you heard Billy. You heard Billy Holiday so first. What, what, the reason I say that is because I heard them together. They're the first. I was told I said, say, "Go and get some Lester Young mm. on saxophone." Yeah, I didn't have any Lester Young. My father didn't have any in the house that I was aware of. You know, uh, any Lester Young records? Didn't have any Billy Holiday either. I don't think. Right. We might have had her Lady in Satin record, but I don't remember it as a kid. So I have to go with more with what I remember hearing, you right. know. And so I bought that. I bought it. It was a uh, two-record set, and um, it was a reissue set of their um, recordings together. Uh, and I think it was called A Musical Romance. Mm. Because in the history of jazz, there have never been two personalities more intertwined as far as a vocalist and instrumentalist than uh, uh, Billie Holiday and Lester Young. Right. And the recordings, they, she idolized him. He adored her. They never, there was never a, um, you know, a uh, actual romance, but musical was just magic because he was the most lyrical saxophone player to me ever um poetic on his instrument and she was the uh 
singer. Uh, some people don't like Billie Holiday. Like Mrs. Coulter, like she prefers Ella Fitzgerald. And I love Ella Fitzgerald. Yeah. But uh, I could have, Billie Holiday, she didn't have, like as a singer, she didn't have this wide range. She didn't have amazing chops. But boy, could she sing with feeling and phrasing. And both of them also acknowledge Louis Armstrong as being influences. Right. Frank Sinatra acknowledges, see, I come back to Louis. Uh, Sinatra acknowledges Billie Holiday and Sinatra as being influences. Um, but uh, to answer your question, I heard Billie and then I heard Lester play. Yeah. His solo. Funny story about this one, Sean. You know how they tell you in music school you should transcribe solos of jazz artists? Oh, yeah. You know? Um, the first solo I ever really tried to transcribe, really sit down and say, okay, I got to learn a Lester Young solo, was the solo off this record. Mm. And um, the recording's in uh, B-flat, concert B-flat. But I had it on an LP, and I didn't realize it at the time. <laughs> I wasn't astute or aware, but my record player was playing a half-step sharp. So it's coming out of the speakers in the key of B. <laughs> Those of you in the audience who might be listening know that the key of B puts the trumpet and puts the tenor saxophone into uh, 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 like, well, I, I, I prefer to say the key of D flat. <laughs> None, nonetheless, it either puts you in seven sharps or uh, five flats, you know, and it, it, it's not they're not easy keys to play in, mm, you know? Yeah. So I actually transcribed it in the, in the wrong key at first. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but this song, I, I love it. It swings. Mm. Uh, it's a beautiful solo. Uh, it's an old tune, you know? Uh, right. It's from the 20s. Uh, but it's one of those early, early, uh, early, uh, so I think I think Teddy Wilson's playing piano on it. Uh, it's great, and it was the title of my first uh, the first recording I ever did under my own name, and I called it "Back in Your Own Backyard." So um, the song has a uh, significance in that regard. My I... father used to listen to. It's not the first time I ever heard this song. Right. My father. Uh, I heard the song around my house because my father. Uh, Loved the music of Errol Garner, who was an amazing swing piano player. Mm. And Errol Garner had a recording of it, too. Uh, but I love this recording. This is a good one. All their work together is is fabulous. And without... Anything they recorded together. Right. And sorry to cut you off there, but no, without no. any further ado, here is Back in Your Backyard featuring Billie Holiday and Lester Young. Go to 
I really enjoyed the trumpet sort of finding a way to like still be a soloist but like play behind her. It's amazing, right? Yeah. The way those guys were able to compliment her but not step on her. Yeah. They were really good at that. That's why these recordings are so cool. Lester Young was a genius at that. You know, he could play behind her and she loved it. You know? Yeah. They, uh, she's the one who gave him the nickname Prez. Mm. Like President. He's the one who nicknamed her Lady Day. So they're, you know, um, they're, they're a great record. <laughs> I like I like what I chose. <laughs> <laughs> I'd hope so. Um. <laughs> no, it's you know it's it, and it's I guess in today's day for a lot of people it, it, it's uh, some of this stuff is somewhat esoteric, right? Uh, yeah. But yet, Sean in the pantheon and the history of our country's music, this is all music by the greatest that our country's produced right you know I want there to... are more obviously there are more right right but these these artists that we delved into armstrong you know uh obviously ellington billy holiday lester mm, young yeah. frank sinatra and even someday they're talking the same tones about james taylor um, these are the greatest musicians our country has produced and, you know, are historic in that regard. I'm so glad that you brought up Billie Holiday because you, we had so many great black um, vocalists at that time. Like Sarah Vaughn, or you had, you had Ella Fitzgerald at that time, and you had Billie. And those were, like, yeah. the top three at that time. People were yeah. listening to, like, anyone at that time. Yeah, and uh, tragically, you know, she had a tragic life. Died along. Her and Lester Young died within, I think, a couple months in the same year of each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, both abuse, uh, too much abuse, mm-hmm. too much alcohol and, and drug abuse, um, and died way too young. You know, you think someone died in their forties. That's young, man. Yeah. You know, uh, even for back then it was, you know, so there was a lot more that, you know, you, you wish that you could have heard from them, but what they produced was for all time. Right. You know, Billy Holiday kind of in Sinatra, they really came into their, uh, like, uh, they were th- those recordings were from the 1930s, right there uh, with Lester and Billy, but uh, and then they both passed away in the 50s. The 1950s was the era of the crooner and the vocalist. Mm. You know, those were the years. That's when Sinatra really, you know, became a huge, huge star. And and then th- those years, you had your 
the Tony Bennett's became to come on out, Nat King Cole, and, uh, uh, Ella. Obviously, Ella's Ella's another one we could have we could do a whole thing on. I was also going to mention um, uh, Nina Simone. She's also Nina Simone. Yeah, not as well known, but yet, but yet another wonderful uh, uh, artist. Oh yeah, who had some really cool song. I like some of her movies. She became, uh, you know, more of a rights activist later on, and you know, uh, yeah. But I, um, yeah. Oh man. Oh man. The music, music world's big, isn't it? <laughs> There's a lot to talk about. It's fun to talk about talk about it with people that appreciate it. Yeah, you know, you well, appreciate it since you were a kid. So I don't, you know, that's I don't know. I could I should interview you. <laughs> I'm going to be interviewing you before long. You would have. I mean, oh god, we would be we'd be here for hours too. <laughs> Um, thank you for sharing your playlist. It was beautiful. It was unique. It was diverse. I'm so glad that you put that together for us. Uh, welcome. When we take, when we, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to quiz Mr. Coulter on his knowledge of jazz music. So you want to stick around and, uh, hear a little bit of that. Stay with us. And we are back with Mr. Coulter. Are you ready to take on this trivia challenge? I don't know. I think the audience <laughs> should know <laughs> that I didn't. I didn't teach you everything you know about jazz. So there may be some things in here that uh, aren't in my area of expertise. You know, Will I it... love jazz and I've read about it and studied aspects of it. But uh, sure, let's go. Let's try. Let's, let's see what we got. Let's do this. Here we go. Here's the first question. I'm not a good. I'm I'm not a good like Jeopardy contestant <laughs> or, or who wants to be a millionaire person or anything like that. I think I think we're 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 all we we all know that we all know that you're going to be great for this. I think. Let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Known as the Divine One. Who won an amateur singing contest as a teenager and quickly became a leading vocalist? Is it Sarah Vaughn, Billie Holiday, or Bessie Smith? That's that's Sarah Vaughn. I saw Sarah Vaughn in concert, too, a couple times. She was at that Quinnipiac Jazz Festival that we talked about. Right, yeah. Oh, my goodness. You know what? kind of an acquired taste for some people, Sean. Right. Right. Yeah. Because she, but she, another another amazing musician. She mm. sit down at the piano and play wonderfully. You know. Yeah, I got to transcribe her solo from uh, Georgia on my mind. Mm. And that's you ever heard her her do that? time like the what for some reason the song that comes to mind quickly uh with her is misty mm. you know and totally oh, she go up she go down you know <laughs> and the way she's extremely expressive in the beginning of the solo for georgia she starts with this like very small turn where she goes and it's it's so hard to sort of follow what she's trying to do but it's just like within one like semi-tone 
And it's like it's it's crazy. And I when I mean semitone, I mean like sort of like a really small distance between like two notes. I know what you mean. Yeah, because yeah. you can do things on, with the voice. You can't. It's hard to emulate or duplicate on your instrument. Yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, you can get the semitones when you're singing. You know, <laughs> so. she's she's brilliant. She is oh, absolutely wow. crazy. All right, here is question number two. At the turn of the 20th century, the term jazz was used interchangeably with, uh, is it A, blues, B, swing, or C, ragtime? Ragtime. Ragtime. Absolutely. Perfect. And it was spelled J-A-S-S. J-A-S-S-S. It also had other connotations that we don't need to talk about right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) By the 1880s, African-American ballads and songs sung by farm workers, field hollers, had evolved into the blues and an influence on jazz. Who is considered the father of blues? Is it John Burks, Blind Lemon Jefferson, or W.C. Handy? W.C. Handy. W.C. Handy. It came along a little later, actually, you know, Hmm. like... uh, but uh, yeah, he was considered the father of the blues. Right. Cool. Um, there's some. Oh man. <laughs> okay, I'll just <laughs> we'll stay with that. But the, or the of course, this classic one was uh, St. Louis Blues or St. Louis Blues. I'm right. still not sure if it's St. Louis or St. Louis. You know. Right. But uh, and Bessie Smith. Uh, and, and Armstrong, again, you know, recorded the definitive version of that. Absolutely. You're killing this so far. Look at you go. Three right. <laughs> <laughs> what you saying earlier on, so we're good. It's yeah. We get up to the uh, 1970s and 80s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's only one more question, right? <laughs> two more. We got two more. Two more. Okay. Here we go. All right. The most famous jazz nightclub in Harlem was called Studio 54, The Cotton Club, or El Morocco. <laughs> the Copacabana. No, it was the Cotton Club. That's absolutely correct. See, you're nailing this. Here we go. Here's the last question. You got this one. Who performed on the first jazz recording? Is it Jelly Roll Morton? Joseph King Oliver or the original Dixieland jazz band? Uh, that would it, is this supposed to be A, B, and C? Mm-hmm. It was the original Dixieland jazz band, nineteen seventeen. Mm. A bunch of and and we're just talking here, white musicians. You know. Yeah. Uh, there was a guy named Freddie Kepper. He was a uh, trumpet player cornet player i should say yeah at that time who they claim could have been the first guy and was offered it but he didn't want to record because he was he was so afraid that people were going to steal his ideas yeah he used to play even live he was afraid people he was paranoid about that and he covered his hands with a handkerchief when he played <laughs> so people could see his fingers yeah. Well, you have conquered this 
podcast, I can I can proudly say you've come on top. You've won all five. I'm going to say the next time I see you, I'll owe you a beer because I'm that old now. <laughs> I find that hard to believe. <laughs> um, so is there anything you want to share with our listeners before we uh, head home for the day? Oh, no. You know what, Sean? I don't know what your audience is, but I, I invite them, especially now, you know, take a few minutes and, and, and dig back, you know, uh, check out some of this music a little bit. Mm. doesn't mean you have to like it, but I, I think that you kind of, I'm not trying to get, you know, philosophical or preachy or anything, but I think, you know, you it, it's enriching. You owe it to yourself to like, at least be aware of it. I mean, it is, it, 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 it's music that was invented in our country. Jazz is music that originated here. Yeah. Uh, it's it, it had a lot of external influences, you know, um, that came over here. But it it's fun, and it's it's really uh, there's a lot of great stories. Yeah. Just and I know I keep coming back to him, but just Armstrong alone is like this fabulous story of a guy that was born in abject poverty and rose up to become the greatest musician our country ever produced. Yeah. You know, so it's like, it's just, they're great stories. And the music is just a lot. And and you just, and people out there are just like me. You're not going to like all of it, but there's, there's some stuff out there for everybody. I think, you know? Yeah. So definitely. Well, thank you for having me. This was fun. Well, thank you for being on my show. I mean, this is always a pleasure. And we and we have four podcasts in the future we're going to be doing together. <laughs> okay, my buddy. Yeah. Well, are we done? We are almost done. I am going to say goodbye, and uh, I will talk to you next time. See you around. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Coulter. And you've been listening to Music Speaks a podcast for lovers of music everywhere. Also this week, I'll have a friend of the show, Hunter Sagona, interview me, Sean Rincunas, in an hour-exclusive flipped interview. And that's it for me. I'm Sean Rincunas, and keep listening to what you love.